You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Good morning. I'm excited about preaching during the second service in particular. My coffee has kicked in. And there isn't a second group of people waiting to come in afterwards, so clear your calendars. We'll, uh, we'll uh, be going as long as the good Lord leads this morning. It's my privilege as well to be another voice and face to welcome you here this morning, and it's my deep joy to delve into God's Word with you. Um, as I shared during the first service, uh, Michael's already uh, told you what the uh, theme of this morning's message is, what the, the point of it is. In reading Isaiah chapter 43, he cited, uh, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. So if you're going to write anything down this morning, write that, underline it. And I hope that we uh, walk us through that this morning as we look at the plagues. Uh, the webs- or a website maintained by the University of Michigan's Museum of Zoology, it speaks of the now extinct Rocky Mountain locust. In the 1870s, those locusts formed a devastating swarm, and the swarm itself included 12.5 trillion locusts and covered an estimated 198,000 square miles. For point of reference, uh, that's over half of the, modern, uh, of, the, of the land of modern Egypt. Adjusted for inflation, the locusts caused $6 billion worth of damage. But in different terms, the United Nations reports that a desert locust such as those found in the Horn of Africa, weighing just two grams, can eat its weight in food on a daily basis. That means that a, swarming, uh, a swarm spanning just one square mile can eat the amount of food that 105,000 people would in just a single day. And the Journal of Weather, Climate, and Society asserts that some of the world's deadliest hailstorms occur in northern India and into Bangladesh. The heaviest hailstorm on record fell there in 1986 and weighed two and a quarter pounds. Though they don't know its dimensions, anecdotal reports from that time claim that the stones that fell that day were the size of pumpkins. A century earlier, in 1888, uh, the region became home to what the World Meteorological Society calls the deadliest hailstorm in recorded history. A witness noted a terrific storm of hail blackened the sky and fell with force that he had never seen equaled. All the windows and glass doors in the area were broken, verandas were blown down, roofs fell in, massive porticos collapsed, and walls shook. Not a single home was spared. Hail formed drifts measuring two or more feet in depth. The storm killed 246 people, most because of direct hail strikes when they were caught out in the open field. Apart from the loss of human life and the extensive property damage in the storm's mere eight-mile length, 1,600 head of cattle, sheep, and goats were also killed. I've shared these accounts this morning 
Because seeing or reading the reality of the devastating effects of famine, infestation, plague, storm, natural disaster, and death weighs immeasurably heavier for me uh, than what we might see in similar accounts in movies or that we might read in a storybook. Rather than awe, overwhelming heartbreak, or even anxiety, the tornadoes of the movies Wizard of Oz or Twister, the pandemic of the movie Outbreak, the struggle of drought and financial ruin in Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath, or the plagues as they're depicted in Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments, or the DreamWorks Prince of Egypt conjure up little more than entertaining suspense or contrived sadness, if any emotion at all. While some might deny them, dismissing them merely as story or legend, it's important for us to know that the plagues inflicted during the Exodus are indeed a matter of historic record. They appear to have been referenced in documents such as the Ipure Papyrus, dated just a few years after the Exodus would have occurred. Even Time Magazine and the U.S. government's National Center for Biotechnology Information seems more fixated on finding naturalistic explanations of the plagues rather than outright denying them. All that to say, when we read of the plagues that were inflicted upon Egypt, please don't miss the weight of what is occurring. The plagues were experienced and felt by an entire nation and affected each and every person's senses and sensibilities. And there was not a family that was not directly affected by them. Rather than being entertained when reading about the plagues or merely intrigued by the story, we ought instead to be overwhelmed by their gravity and consequence, struck by their purpose, and left in awe of God's power seen through them. With that said, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 7, verse 14, as we look at how God has made himself known through his demonstrations of power in the plagues. If you're using a Bible from the chair in front of you, it should be on page 49. Again, Exodus chapter 7, verse 14, and we're going to read a bit of an extended passage this morning. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refused to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, With the staff that is in your hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. As the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the uh, waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. 
And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink from the Nile. And there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Now on to chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you, if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all of your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into your houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on your, all of your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up out onto the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take them, uh, the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for the, your people, uh, that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs, as he had had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so it be may become gnats in all of the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all of the land. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are admittedly overwhelmed uh, by your work, by your power uh, that we see through the plagues that you cast upon Egypt. Uh, what I pray is that we would understand uh, the weight of your judgment against sin, and that we would rest in the hope and joy of the promised deliverance of your people. Lord, help us to see your hand through the plagues. Help us to understand how it might give us confidence as we walk forward. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. 
As Pastor Bob highlighted last week, Moses and Aaron had already called upon Pharaoh to allow the Israelites three days to go and worship God in the wilderness. Pharaoh refused. He asked, who is the Lord, uh, that he should obey his voice and let Israel go? He declared that he did not know the Lord and uh, would not let Israel go. But understand, he was not innocently asking who Yahweh was or inquiring how he could serve him or serve him better. Instead, Pharaoh was explicitly stating that he didn't recognize God's authority. He didn't realize the divinely orchestrated irony behind his words. We won't be reading the entirety of this morning's passage, though I would encourage you to go and do that later today. Even so, uh, allow me to summarize the first of the nine plagues cast upon Egypt. We won't be speaking about the Passover this morning. Pastor Matt is going to approach that next week. As we begin uh, Exodus 7, uh, the Nile, the lifeblood of Egypt, along with what appears to be all the fresh water in the nation of Egypt, was changed to blood, extending even to the water stored in pitchers and bowls, even to your Nalgene bottles and Contigo water bottles. The Nile's fresh, otherwise life-giving water uh, was now undrinkable and would become a stinking grave. Understand, this is not too far removed from when that life-giving body of water also served as a grave as Pharaoh had ordered the death of the Hebrew boys tossed into it. Chapter 8 then turns to frogs that are covering the land and invaded the homes, bedrooms, and kitchens. When relief was provided, the frogs died in place, covering the landscape with filth and stench. Infestations of gnats, mosquitoes, flies, uh, or lice, it overtook the people and their livestock. Swarms annoying them, being inhaled and swallowed, crawling on their skin and in their hair, leaving them covered in bug bites and rashes. If you're anything like me, you feel this incessant need to scratch right now. Then, drawing a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites, God uh, cast swarming flies upon the Egyptians. They devoured food in the homes, leaving behind rot and maggots, and they tormented their animals. The word here, however, is pretty vague, and it could refer to any number of uh, flying, swarming insects. Uh, So understand that we're not just talking about annoying or bothersome house flies. Now, this could also be extended to think of biting horse flies or stinging bees or hornets. Then in Exodus chapter 9, the severity of the plagues increased, again with God's people being spared. Flocks, herds, and beasts of burden were inflicted with a virus or infection or disease that killed them en masse. Sickness, boils, and sores broke out among the Egyptians, with the Israelites again appearing to be spared. The same words are used to describe the sores that Job experienced in that book, uh, the ones that he would scrape with pottery shards seeking some sort of relief. Violent thunderstorms with heavy hail, large enough to kill people and animals that it struck, and significant enough to destroy property and crops lashed out against the land. And that, that wasn't destroyed by the hail might have ended up burning as lightning torched the landscape. 
Chapter 10 brings the destructive locust consuming new crops and what hadn't already been described uh, destroyed by the hail, leaving nothing less than storm and insect-induced famine. And then, silence. Immediate and resolute. The land was covered in a, a suffocating, disorienting darkness. The chapter says that uh, people could not see one another, nor did anyone rise from their place for three days. The Israelites, however, enjoyed the daylight. All of this, the annoyance, the inconvenience, uh, the death, destruction, it all magnified the power of God, but the question is why? Scripture is clear that there were three main purposes for God displaying his power through the plagues. The first, that Pharaoh and the Egyptians would know the Lord. The second, that the Israelites would know their God. And third, that the world would know the Lord. Now understand that the plagues were sent so that Pharaoh and the Egyptians would know the Lord. And we're specifically told that in Exodus chapter 7, verse 5 and verse 17. Uh, But the question is, what were they supposed to learn about God? The passage describes that as well. Exodus chapter 9, verse 14 uh, says that the plagues were sent so that they would understand that there is no one like him in all of the earth. To that end. From the very beginning of the signs shown Pharaoh, God was exerting his omnipotence and absolute sovereignty over him and all of creation. It was God who created the heavens. It was God who created the earth and the fullness thereof. He did so with order and intentionality. And in the plagues, not only is he reminding Pharaoh of that, but he is also systematically dismantling that creation one piece at a time to remind Pharaoh who indeed the creator was. Numbers chapter 33 verse 4 then explains that the Lord used the, the plagues to execute judgment on Egypt's pantheon of gods. By all accounts, Egypt had a myriad of local, regional, and national gods, well in excess of 2,000. Their roles and responsibilities often overlapped. And as such, we're not able to definitively link each of the plagues to a specific deity. But the Lord nonetheless used the plagues to illustrate their feeble and ineffectual power. Admittedly, their gods, uh, perhaps demons or some other manifestation of Satan's power, they were not completely powerless. After all, the sorcerers and priests were able to mimic two of the plagues, even if they couldn't control or end them. Even so, the priests, they were no longer able to petition their gods. They were no longer able to stand before their gods, beginning in the third plague, uh, that being one of what I would argue is lice. And let me explain what I, I mean by that rather than gnats. You see, ancient Egyptian documents explain the cultic practices that priests had to go through before going into their temples. Uh, They weren't permitted to eat onions or garlic uh, for fear of the fact that their bad breath might offend the gods. In the same way, they had to shave their head, which I would endorse, but they also had to shave all of the hair off the rest of their body. Why? because they didn't want to risk having fleas or lice on their body, indicating their uncleanness as they entered into the temples of their priests. 
It's interesting to note here uh, that that concern might be exactly why they didn't go before their gods. It's for this reason that I tend to believe that the third plague was lice instead of gnats. And it's not hard for us to imagine here that the reason the priests or the sorcerers told Pharaoh that in this plague, they, uh, that that might be the reason why they told Pharaoh in this plague, that they saw the finger of God. After all, they had been cut off from their own gods and the Lord had revealed their impotency. Through the plagues, the Lord revealed that Ra, the chief of the Egyptian gods and their sun god, Hopi and Isis, the god and goddess of the Nile. Hecate, the goddess of birth and fertility, whose face is depicted as that of the frog's head. Hathor, a goddess depicted with a cow's head. Osiris, whose bloodstream was indeed the Nile, and he was the god of the harvest. Set, a storm god and the god of the desert. Newt, a sky goddess. And any number of others were not actually gods at all. Besides these, God was also addressing Pharaoh and the people's sin, pride, and hardness of heart. Now, the first nine plagues, they came in sets of three, in three sets of three. Thus, the reason why we read of the three first plagues. In the first plague in each set, Moses is commanded to appear before Pharaoh as he heads down to the river in the morning. He does that with the first, fourth, and seventh. It appears to be a fairly intimate setting, perhaps even catching Pharaoh as he's heading for a morning bath or offering morning prayers to his gods. If I'm correct, it appears that God is making a personal appeal to Pharaoh through Moses and Aaron that he would have a change of heart. In the second of each set, Moses is then commanded to appear before Pharaoh, possibly in his courts. And if that's the case, then this would have been a more public forum where he was uh, carrying out the business and the work of leading the nation. If we're following that, that it means that a personal feel, uh, appeal was then followed by a public rebuke. And when Pharaoh had not responded to either of those, each set's third plague is then carried out with, without warning and offered only with a gesture from Moses. Well, God is patient and long-suffering, while he provides the opportunity for repentance for you to turn from your ways, more than any of us deserve or comprehend, he does not exercise his patience without end. Eventually, his judgment will come. Perhaps the most difficult portion of this morning's passage is the frequent reference to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, but not just his, that of his people too. Scripture's clear that they hardened their own hearts. Scripture's also abundantly clear that God hardened their hearts in order that his power might be seen through them. Though we struggle with how to respond to that, uh, this passage forces us to consider both God's sovereignty over people and where they will spend their eternity and human agency over their own lives. Unfortunately, if that's a question you have today and you're hoping for some sort of reconciliation or, or answer to that, you're going to leave here today left wanting. What I do know from that fact, 
from these verses is that I will not and I cannot apologize for God. Romans 9.15 says that God has mercy on whom he has mercy and compassion upon whom he has compassion and that it depends not on human will or exertion but solely on God who has mercy. Romans 9.18 continues stating that God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Quite clearly, God is sovereign over all things, everything, including our salvation. With that said, Scripture is also clear that salvation, that is, eternal life in Jesus Christ, is also a free gift of God. Even if we do not completely understand how it works, God was sovereign over hardening Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh was nonetheless responsible for hardening his heart and responsible for his sin and stubbornness and refusing to turn from them and ultimately submit to the will of God. That's a paradox that, uh, that each of us here have to navigate. That's a paradox uh, that Christians throughout the ages have wrestled over. Ultimately, the severity of the plagues, they reveal just how extensive and deeply ingrained Pharaoh and Egypt's sins were. They highlight uh, the significance of God's judgment toward their sins. But the number of plagues and the amount of time that appeared to have passed between each of them, whether it's seven days after the flooding or a period of possible months or a season uh, from the time that the, the hail destroyed the crops until new growth arose so that locusts could then destroy the secondary crops, uh, those are evidence uh, to God's patience and his mercy and our opportunity to turn to him. The purpose of the plagues was that God would be known by both Pharaoh and Egypt. To be clear, God was not looking for the Egyptians to merely acknowledge his hand at work or recognize that he was who he said he was. As James 2.19 reminds us, even the demons believe in God. They acknowledge that he is who he is. They acknowledge his power and they shudder. Instead, according to Exodus chapter 9, verse 17, And again in chapter 10, verse 3, and elsewhere, it was God's aim that Pharaoh and the Egyptians would stop exalting themselves over him and against his people and instead would humble themselves. It's not necessarily a message I want to hear today, right? Pharaoh may very well have been the most powerful man on earth at the time in question, uh, but he was not God. He was not ultimately sovereign, and he would not maintain the enslavement of God's people through his will, through his might, or through his stubbornness. God wanted them, uh, that is, the Egyptians and Pharaoh and his servants, to know him. Uh, But he also wanted them to believe and trust in him. And we see a glimpse of that that occurs in the seventh plague. Exodus chapter 9, verse 20 and following says, Whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into their houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his uh, livestock in the field. While the text is otherwise silent, it does point to the fact that there uh, was a little bit of respite for those that actually uh, followed and obeyed God. 
It also seems to suggest that uh, Egyptians might have been obeying him, carrying on in the future. And he may very well have spared others uh, from other plagues, maybe even the Passover. God's demonstrations of power through the plagues uh, were also for the Israelites to know their Lord. For the Israelites, though, this wasn't really their introduction to the Lord as it might have been for the Egyptians and for Pharaoh. Instead, he had already made himself known by both name and action to them. Exodus 10 verse 1 says that the plagues, uh, they were cast so that the Israelites might witness the signs of the plagues and that God uh, and what God has done among them and might know that he is Lord. And what we mean by that, what, what is often meant uh, by the word no throughout the Old and New Testament is something beyond an academic acquiescence. They're not just acknowledging the fact that God is who he says he is. Uh, that word no, that word believe requires a right response. Uh, so they're acknowledging that God is indeed Yahweh, that he is indeed the I am. But they're also acknowledging that they have an obligation to follow him. They would know that he is Lord because he would reveal himself as their deliverer. He would reveal himself as their promise-keeping God, fulfilling the promises that he didn't just make to them, but that he also made uh, to their forefather, Abraham, fulfilling the promises that he had just reminded them about in Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 to 9, that he would bring them out of Egypt, that he would deliver them, redeem them, and take them to be his people, and that he would be their God. Promises that he would bring them into the promised land and give it to them as their inheritance. He would do these things, uh, not just so that they would know that he is God, but that they might also tell others about him. That they might tell future generation of God and his covenant, of his goodness, of his faithfulness, of his seriousness, uh, of the seriousness of his response towards sin, and of his power and the mighty works that he did. That's what's referenced later in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and following, about the fact that we're supposed to tell our kids about the goodness of God, about our walk with Christ as we're doing the dishes, as we're cleaning the basement, as we're changing the oil in our car, as we're taking a walk, as we're driving here to church this morning, as we're sitting over meals. As we wake up and as we go to bed, we should be proclaiming the works of God to our children. Again, God's desire was not that Israel would simply recognize him or know his name, but that they would be able to see and attest to his attributes, recognize his power, and submit to his works. And their knowledge of God was to lead them to worship him, and to submit to him, to serve him, to follow and trust him. That's the explanation that Moses and Aaron kept giving to Pharaoh. Let my people go that they may serve their God. Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let you go worship your God. And there's a nexus there between worship and service, and they are inseparable. God's demonstration of power through the plagues were so that Pharaoh would know that he was God, so that God's people would know him more deeply, and so that the world would know the Lord. Exodus chapter 9 verse 16 says, For this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show in you my power, so that my name might be proclaimed all, uh, throughout all of the earth. And indeed it was. As Joshua uh, was leading the charge into the promised land, uh, the spies first encountered a prostitute named Rahab. Uh, 
According to Joshua chapter 2, verse 10, those in Jericho had heard of what had been done in Egypt. They had heard of the plagues and the exodus. And as soon as they heard it, their hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because they knew their God was, uh, that the Israelites' God was the Lord and that he was indeed God in heavens above and on the earth beneath. Years later, after the conquest is already completed in, the, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 8. So we know that it's at least 40 years later, right? That's the bare minimum. The Philistines echoed the exact same concern, lamenting their helplessness against a people whose God had struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague. I don't know if you read through the Old Testament and you see these songs, songs and psalms pop up uh, where Israel is being reminded of God's faithfulness to the plagues and the fact that it's he that raised them up and it's he that drew them out of Egypt and it's he that has continued to be their God. Uh, those conditions, this account, is sung throughout all of Israel's history. It's the key to one of their key, path, uh, one of their key holidays even today. But this message didn't just uh, echo and resound for God's people. Clearly, it was echoing throughout the known world at that time. Because of the plagues, the world would know both the reality of sin and God's judgment against it, and they would know that there was no gods besides him. Their own gods were useless and impotent. They would also know of God's faithfulness to deliver his people. They would know that it's the Lord God and he alone that delivered them. God moved in the life of Abraham and in the plagues uh, that his name might be proclaimed through the nations. And I did re- mean to refer to Abraham there, not just Moses. It's the exact same promise that he gave. I'm going to make you a covenant people that my name would be known. I'm going to deliver you because I want my name known. And God continues to work in and through us as his church that, his, uh, that the name of our deliverer, Jesus Christ, would continue to be proclaimed through the nations. We must answer then, how are we supposed to respond to a God that has made himself known? First, may I implore you not to take uh, Pharaoh's approach. When Pharaoh encountered the hand of God, he brushed it off and he refused to listen. Take note of the fact that God graciously gave him another nine opportunities to acknowledge and submit to him as Lord. Even so, Pharaoh then decided to negotiate with God using a variety of tactics. He began with this quid pro quo. If you do this for me, then I'll do this in response to you. When that was ineffective, then he switched it up. I'll do this for you if you do this for me. And then he thought he was at the negotiating table. He's like, look, I'll let your people go, but here are the conditions that I'm going to set on. You can go, but maybe it's not for the extent of time that you were hoping. You can go, but only the men among you can go. You can go, but you can't take anything to sacrifice to your God. We see that where that got him. Rather than repentance, Pharaoh then relied upon uh, uh, maybe an acknowledgement of his sin, right? It says that at one point, uh, Pharaoh uh, confessed his sins, acknowledging that he was a sinner and that God was indeed right. Even still, he stopped well short of being willing to do anything about it. Yeah, at one point, he even asked for forgiveness of Moses, but then refused to follow up with any sort of submission. 
No, he wanted to be forgiven so that he could continue living the way that he wanted without recourse. Understand that confession and asking forgiveness is not repentance. Well, we live in a world that is open about its sins, that's readily confessing all of the things that it brings before God, but they're not willing to do anything about it. Oh, we ask for forgiveness all of the time. I didn't mean to offend you. But what repentance requires is that we actually turn 180 degrees, that our mind be completely changed, and that we submit to the life and work of the Spirit in our lives. That's repentance. Needless to say, Pharaoh's approach didn't work. Though Pharaoh remained stubborn, his priests recognized God's hand at work. And even when his priests could no longer stand before God or Moses, Pharaoh still stood uh, resolute, even if powerless. Even his servants pleaded with him as both his and their words fell apart. Give them what they want, they pleaded. But he remained unmoved. Even still, his most heartbreaking response is yet to come. We read in Exodus chapter 10, verse 21 to 29. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over all of the land, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was a pit, uh, pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must, not also, uh, you must also let us have our sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take all of them to serve the Lord our God but we, and do not know what we might use to serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care to see, uh, never see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. Speaking to Moses, after three days of both real and symbolic darkness, Pharaoh instructs him to go away from him, that he never wanted to see his face, and then gives him the threat of death if he violates it. I hope that you understand the weight of Pharaoh's words here. God, in his grace and mercy, had given Pharaoh and Egypt a mediator. A mediator who spoke the things of God to them faithfully, time and again, who interceded on, behalf, on their behalf after every plague, and who time and again gave a call to and provided an opportunity for repentance. Uh, this mediator had pointed Pharaoh to God and given, given him a hope of deliverance. And yet Pharaoh rejected that mediator, and God's response through Moses was immediate. God removed his mediator. Such will be the case for men and women who refuse God's lordship and grace and mercy on this side of eternity. As we read in Romans 1, God will ultimately give them over to the desires of a life without him. And then, even standing at the judgment seat of Christ, 
they will remain, remain resolute, exerting their own authority, their own lordship, and telling Christ that they neither know him or recognize his authority. If you are here today and you do not yet know Jesus, I plead with you that you would not reject our perfect mediator. For those in the church, for those that would call themselves believers, I hope that you find hope in this, the promise of deliverance, the promise of that media, the promise of God's faithfulness to draw us up out of that. And it's my hope and prayer that you would respond well to God's authority and his direction and his wondrous displays of power. Per the passage, God's people were delivered so that they could go and worship and serve their God. We too are saved for a purpose. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 explains the purpose of that, the fact that God is the mover of our salvation, that he does it for his glory without anything that we bring to the table, and that we are specifically saved for a purpose, that being to walk in the good works that he had prepared for us beforehand. Romans 12, 1 also explains what this worship looks like. It says, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We are called to give our all to him no matter where, no matter when, and no matter what he calls us to. This passage today, it highlights the effects of sin and God's response toward it. But it also points to a long-suffering God who patiently endures sin with the hope to deliver them. And that's the promise that we get to cling to. No matter how bad the evening news is getting worse by the day, we have hope of deliverance if we trust our lives to him. If you know Christ, continue to love and serve him. Continue to worship him while maintaining a soft heart one that is not hard but is receptive to the life-changing work of the Holy Spirit as he continues to conform us uh, to the image of Christ. Uh, we see that imagery in both uh, Exodus chapter 36, uh, Ezekiel chapter 36 and again in Hebrews chapter 3. Ezekiel explains that God is going to remove our heart of stone and replace it with a soft, malleable, pliable heart of flesh. I pray that your heart would remain soft and open to the work of the Spirit in your life. Why? To conform him to your image. Why? Hopefully to lead you to be part of his flock. But Hebrews also gives us the warning uh, that even as believers, we need to be careful and intentional to not allow our heart to get hardened uh, by sin and the effects of sin in the culture around us. Continue to remain diligent. Continue to keep uh, your eyes on Christ. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, indeed, you are powerful and worthy of all praise. We confess our own pride, our own desire to to uphold our own idols, uh, to put our trust in ourselves, our institutions of man and our government, even in our own strength, but we confess that all of those fall at your feet. Lord, we thank you uh, that you have made yourself known 
not just through the plagues, but through your continued mighty work and your walk with us. And we pray that we would continue to be faithful in telling a world about your goodness, about your faithfulness, and in telling our future generations uh, that you are God and that you are alone. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.